chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jamie. Would you pray with me? Father, what a privilege it is to call you Father. To know that all those who receive the Lord Jesus Christ, all those who believe in his name, have the right to be called the sons and daughters of God. What a privilege it is to be able to address you as our Father and to speak directly to you through the mediating work of Jesus Christ. Lord, this morning as we uh, prepare to examine this text together, I, I pray that you would Pour out your spirit in the ministry of our members who are serving in other places today. I think of Pat and Carla as they continue to serve at First Baptist Church of Gordon. Lord, please anoint them with your power. Make them effective, encouraging, edifying to that church. Uh, we pray for Pastor Guy as he ministers in Armenia. Uh, Lord, would you please give him your joy Give him clarity as he opens his mouth to speak your word. And I pray that you would give him a skill as he leads that team. Keep them safe, Father, and, and make them fruitful. And Lord, really through, throughout our whole city, we, we ask that, you would, that your word would, would hold sway and that your spirit would uh, just be gracious and, and merciful and pour out your mercies on each congregation, and that you would bring renewal 
and revival to the city of Mineral Wells. Uh, Father, I pray that as we look at this text, that you would help us to see what you want from us on the matter of prayer. And uh, we, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christians throughout the centuries have become famous for a variety of reasons. Uh, Paul of Tarsus, for example, became famous uh, for his missionary work and for writing 13 New Testament books. Uh, Centuries later, a Christian pastor named Augustine would become famous for his deep theological reflections. Martin Luther is famous for jump-starting the Reformation in the 1500s. Billy Graham is famous for preaching to millions of people all around the globe. But, but through 2,000 years of church history, very few Christians, it seems to me, have become well-known, have become famous for their work in prayer. As a matter of fact, I can only think of one name, George Mueller. I realize that to call George Mueller famous is perhaps overstating the fact a little bit. Some of you have never heard the name, uh, so let me just tell you a little bit about him. Mueller was born in Prussia in 1805, and at a very young age, he began to descend into a life of dissipation. He was so cynical that on the evening of his mother's death, when young George was only 14 years old, he was actually, he was actually out playing cards and drinking with his friends while his own mother was dying. But years later, his life would change dramatically when he attended a small prayer meeting in a private home in the year 1825. Soon after, uh, he was born again, and he uh, began a career full-time ministry. He moved to England, where he pastored several small congregations. By 1836, he decided to open up an orphanage in his own home in Bristol, Before long, Mueller had opened several orphanages serving thousands of children, and it was during these years that he became famous for his work of prayer. Uh, According to Dr. Donald Whitney, Mueller had over 50,000 unique answers to prayer recorded in his journals. Uh, Think about how many that is. This works out to about an average of 500 answered prayers per year. That is more than one per day. Amazing. Even while he was still living, Mueller became famous for his life of prayer. Once while crossing the Atlantic, a thick fog descended around his ship, forcing the captain to slow their speed considerably. Mueller explained to the captain, hey, I've got an important meeting and an appointment in Quebec, and I need to get there on time. Is there any way that we can speed this ship up? And the captain said, I can't do it. It's not safe because of this fog. Mueller said to the captain, do you mind if I go use the chart room in order to pray? Well, the captain was curious, so he descended into the chart room with him, and uh, they both knelt together in prayer. Mueller uttered a short prayer, and the captain began to pray as well, Uh, but Mueller interrupted. Captain, he said, I have known my Lord for more than 50 years, and there is not one instance that I have failed to get an audience with the king. Get up, for you will find that the fog has gone. When they returned to the bridge, they found that Mueller's prayer had been answered in the affirmative. The captain increased their speed, and Mueller was able to keep his appointment. And in his case, there are dozens of similar stories to the one that I just shared. Uh, Stories of answered prayer. He was a tremendous minister of the gospel. He was a pioneer of orphan care in the 19th century, but he is best known for his work in prayer. 
Can you imagine being known as a man of prayer? Being known as a woman of prayer. Like, that guy, he is always praying. Man, she just seems to get a hold of God's throne. Can you imagine, wouldn't it be wonderful, Indian Creek, if our church were known as a church of prayer? Well known, not because we're anything great, not because, not, not because of anything having to do with ourselves, but because we spend time together praying before the throne of grace. Last week I started a series on vision, a, a series asking the question, what kind of church do we want to be here at Indian Creek? Uh, we know who we are as believers in Christ. We know the mission that Jesus has given to every local church at every time and in every place. But given that we live in a specific time and at a specific place with a specific set of gifts and opportunities and, and even challenges, how should we make the most of these circumstances and actually move forward to fulfill the mission that God God has given us. In the first place, we expressed last week that we want to be a faithful church, not an important church, not a cool church or a fun church or an intellectual church or an innovative church, just a faithful church. And we saw last week that if we're going to be a faithful church, then we can't merely preach right doctrine and be really nice people. We have to take it a little further than that and actually take the talents that God has given to us and invest them in such a way that it maximizes the spiritual profit of the master, knowing that one day we'll be accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our task in order to be faithful. And today I want to offer a second answer to our question. What kind of a church do we want to be? We want to be a faithful church, but secondly, we want to be a praying church church. I think you'll agree. And now, given the realities of post-Christian culture, post-pandemic life, uh, given the opportunities and the challenges ahead of us in the immediate future as a church and, and in our city as a whole, we need this now as much as we ever have. We must be a praying church. In the passage we just read, Jesus' disciples recognized this very need. They asked Jesus, hey, teach us to pray, just like John taught his disciples to pray. They knew in, a, in this rare moment of humility and correctly placed priorities that they needed to cultivate a life of prayer. And they also recognized that it, it's not necessarily intuitive, that there's all sorts of ways that we can go wrong on this. They needed to be taught. John the Baptist had instructed them a little bit, but they needed Jesus to give them the knowledge and the confidence to make prayer a part of their everyday life. And so they go to Jesus and they say, please teach us to pray. And what we're going to find is that to become a praying follower of Jesus, to become a praying church, is not, it's not intuitive, but it's also not a complicated thing only for the spiritually elite. Prayer is not the exclusive property of the exceptionally spiritual. It's actually very simple. Jesus offers his disciples basically two sets of instructions signaled in the text for us by the phrase, and he said to them. In verse 2, he says, and he said to them, and he answers the question, what should we pray? And then again in verse 5, and he said to them, and he answers the question, why should we pray? What should we pray? Why should we pray? So let's look together at Jesus' answer to the first question in verses 1 through 4. What should we pray? 
Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. If you've read the gospel according to Matthew, you probably recognize some of those phrasings as sort of a shorter, compacted version of what in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 6 is called the Lord's Prayer. Notice that Jesus in this passage doesn't say, pray along these lines, or pray something like this. He says, when you pray, say. Now, we could take that to mean that Jesus is giving his disciples a sort of a mantra, an incantation, this like magic spell. Like if you say these words and and you do all these right things and you're going to get exactly what you want. But if you actually read the content of the prayer, you see he's doing almost like the exact opposite of that. In fact, what he is doing is illustrating the fact that, that addressing the creator of the universe because of who he is, And because of what Jesus will go on to do is so simple and so straightforward that it requires virtually no skill at all. In fact, you don't even have to come up with the words and the phrases on your own. You could literally pray what Jesus prays right here. And you, you, if you, if you are communicating with the Lord in Jesus name from your, from the heart, you are praying. When you pray, say, And then the very first word, Father. This is revolutionary. Father. It's true that Jewish believers were known to speak of the fatherhood of God, but in all of the textual and and, 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 uh, archaeological examples available to us today, not one time, not once, is there an example of anyone addressing the Creator God as Father directly except for Jesus and His followers? That's it. This is shocking. God is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the all-wise, thrice-holy, unmatched creator of every molecule, the inventor of every single joy, the one who first imagined the splendors of space and the infinite details of DNA. He is the sovereign king of the universe who commands the hosts of heaven, who sees every thought, who punishes guilt and iniquity and sin. This God we can call Father, in Jesus' name. With the very first word, we're reminded of what commentators have called the simple and intimate address we are instructed to use when we come before our God in prayer. It's nothing complex or mysterious. It's very simple. It's intimate. It's not for the smart or the strong or the clever or the wealthy to pray. It is for all. Even a child can pray. Even the vilest criminal can pray in Jesus' name and say, Father. And then Jesus tells us what to pray. There are four things listed. Four shuns. All right, you'll see what I mean. There are four shuns to help you remember what Jesus asks us to pray. First of all, Jesus advises that we pray for the mission. For the mission. Pray for the mission. Let me explain what I mean. He says, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. What 
do these phrases mean? They're very religious sounding to our ears. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Here's what it means. May your name be regarded as holy. May your rule, may your dominion infiltrate the earth. So this phrase comes from a rich tradition going back all the way to the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 36, for example, the Lord rebukes the people of Israel because they had done the opposite of what this prayer expresses. Here's what the Lord says about the children of Israel. He says, I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, They profaned my holy name. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord. Did you hear that? What is important to God is that his name be regarded as holy because all these nations, all these billions and billions of people all throughout the world are going throughout life and they're building things and they're, they're uh, getting married and they're having children and they're enjoying life and, and the one who gave them all of the gifts that they enjoy is not being regarded as holy in their minds. He is not being worshipped and loved and thanked and believed in and God's mission is that they would come to know who he is and bow before him. He wants us to pray for the mission. Let me just pause here for a moment and say this. If you are not a Christian, my prayer is that in your mind, in your heart, you come to see the name of the Lord as holy. That you begin to regard God as your one and only Lord, your one and only creator, your one and only savior. Here's what that means. It means that you recognize that you are ultimately accountable to only one being, only one person, the Lord who created you. It means that you understand that if you are not right with this God, your life is over. You are done. You are condemned You are hopeless. It means that you look to Jesus, his only begotten son, alone to rescue you from sin. It means that you forsake that sin and your self-reliance and you turn to him as your Lord and Savior. It means that you call out to him for forgiveness and, and, and you trust him completely. That's what it means to regard the name of the Lord as holy. Hallowed be your name. God's goal for all of humanity is that a countless multitude from every tribe and nation walk this path and regard his name as holy to sanctify it in their hearts, that first in our hearts and then through all the earth his reign might be established. Now, church, is this the first thing on our minds when we go to pray? Are we praying for the mission? Are we praying that through everything we do as a church, his name is sanctified and his kingdom is established? Is that our first prayer? 
How different this is from the way we often approach our Heavenly Father. Aside from the fact that we often simply avoid prayer, when we do finally bow our heads, often it's because we're in just this desperate situation, we need some help getting out of it, and so often our prayers are focused on the things that we want and the things that we think we need. But according to Jesus, our first priority in prayer is the name of the Lord. It's the It's the hallowing of the name of the Lord, the glory, the reputation, the fame of our God among all the peoples of the earth. We must pray for the mission. How do we pray about the capital stewardship campaign that we're walking through as a church in light of what Jesus just said? Here's how I'm praying. God, can you use this process, can you use this building for the advancement of your mission in the world? Would you make this classroom and this fellowship space and this area over here a tool For the advancement of your rule and your reign in the earth, can you make this building a representation of your, a a reminder to the people that are living around us that our God reigns, that he's good, that he's merciful and kind? Can can you make it a house for all the peoples, rich and poor, English-speaking, Spanish-speaking, young, old, a testimony to the fact that God wants all people everywhere to see his name vindicated before him? That's my prayer for this building. First of all, we need to pray for the mission. That's our first shun. But secondly, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for provision. Pray for provision. Give us each day our daily bread, he says. It seems to me that this request harks back to the time in the Exodus when the children of Israel are led out into the wilderness and their cause to rely on God for their daily bread, and he provides manna on the ground every single morning. They're not supposed to save some for the next day. They have to depend on him for every single morsel of food that goes into their mouths. And how easily it is that we forget this. We take for granted the education that we've all received. We take for granted the strength of of the muscles and skeleton that God has given us to be able to do work, the clever mind that he's given each of us, the opportunities that we are all afforded, the roads that we drive on, the paths that we walk, the reality that public servants protect our lives and property. These are things that not everyone has in the world. These are things we could lose in the snap of a finger. And every one of them is a gift from from God. And instead of simply using these things, instead of taking them for granted or even just working for these things, Jesus reminds us that we must remember where they come from and, and we need to pray for his provision. Last week we all had a pretty huge reality check when it came to this building. Pretty overwhelming price tag. But there's no need to fret about it. If God wants us to have this built, he will provide. Worrying is not going to add one cent to our bank account. It's not going to bring down the price of steel or concrete or drop free playground equipment into our lap, as painful as that might be. When I told my wife about the cost of the building a few weeks ago, we were both a little shell-shocked, and she reminded me that in our marriage, many times over the course of 15 years of marriage, there have been a lot of times when we had to spend money on something that at the time was overwhelmingly costly to us. You know, homeschool curriculum or 
some kind of medical bill or a, a repair at the house. And when, these are times when money was a lot tighter for us than it is right now. And even though I pouted and I furrowed my brow and I scratched my head and messed up my hair and went on the computer and tried to figure out how we could afford this and still couldn't make it work, God took care of us through all those things. And I can look back and I cannot think of a single example where worrying and giving myself a stomach ulcer helped us be able to do what we needed to do as a family. We don't need to worry. We just need to pray. And if God wants us to have this building, he'll provide. If he wants your family to participate financially, he'll provide. And if something came up tomorrow that changed everything and we had to scrap this whole project, listen, something we didn't foresee, then we need to just remember that if, if not even angels and spiritual powers nor things present nor things to come nor any other creature can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, then guess what? If something happens that we didn't expect and we can't do what we wanted to do, then that will still be true. We'll still be members of the family of God. We'll still be equipped with the word of God. We'll still know that we're a part of the family of God. And that can't change. We'll be okay. So with that being said, instead of worrying, I need to pray. God, is this something that we need? Can you please provide? Give us today our daily bread. Pray for the mission. Pray for provision. Thirdly, pray for remission. For remission. Forgiveness, that is. I had to kind of squeeze that one in to make it a shun. (laughs) Forgiveness. Forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Uh, Yes, believers are forgiven sinners. And, And there's nothing that can change that. If you're genuinely in Christ and born again, then there's no way that that you can be plucked away from the hands of your shepherd. But none of that means that we live perfectly. None of us is sinlessly perfect. So Jesus makes clear that life as a follower of Christ is a life of confession and forgiveness. He says the same in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. What is he, what is he, who's he talking to? He's talking to believers. You've got to walk in confession and forgiveness. And notice as well that our relationship with our Father is tied directly to our willingness to forgive our brothers and sisters. So Indian Creek, let's be a church that prays for, that pursues a culture of reconciliation and forgiveness. One of the things I've noticed as we've started to go through this process is that everybody's sort of on high alert. You know, we're all like, what's going to happen? What's going on? And our relationships with each other are being stretched to the limit. And the level of trust that we have toward one another is being tested. And uh, when you're walking through the kind of season that we're facing as a church, we can't be like the world. See, in the world, it's normal to to take somebody that you don't like or somebody that did something to you that that you didn't appreciate or somebody sinned against you and just kind of cut that person off. That's normal in the world. And unfortunately, many churches operate this way. I used to sit on this side of the auditorium, but I can't sit it over there anymore after what Janet did. And so now I've got to sit on this side of the auditorium. I don't think there's anybody here named Janet. (laughs) I can't, maybe, sorry, if there is. And I know that sounds silly, 
it's the kind of thing we all know happens. This is a small town. There's a lot of history. And there are believers, people that claim to know Jesus personally, who claim to be indwelt by the Spirit of God, who have harbored that bitterness and that unforgiveness for years and years. And folks, we can't be that way as a church. So if you're holding something over someone else in this room, you have got to deal with it. And if doing a building project kind of brings some of those things to the surface, all the better. Because we cannot live that way as children of God. We must walk in forgiveness. See, we're going to sin against each other. It's going to happen. There's no way around it. There is no church. You will never visit a church that is perfect and everybody treats each other with uh, complete kindness and never sins against each other. It's just not out there. So if that's true, if that's the reality that sin happens in the church, then we've got to develop a culture. We've got to have a culture that, that we walk in confession and repentance towards one another and towards the Lord. We've got to have this forgiving community toward one another. Pray for forgiveness. Pray with a forgiving heart. Uh, Pray for the mission, pray for provision, pray for remission, and fourthly, pray for protection. Pray for protection. Jesus says, pray this, lead us not into temptation. God, protect me from the moral dangers of the world in which I live. Protect me from my flesh. Protect me from the devil. Protect me from the world. Uh, it, it seems to me that this is what our church family needs to pray as well. A lot of you uh, have had questions about the project that we're working on together, about where we're taking things as a church. Concerns have been raised. And first of all, let me just thank you for being willing to raise issues with me and with the elders and with the other leaders. That is a privilege to be able to hear what you think. And by the way, if you haven't raised issues or you don't have issues. I don't want you to think that people are like upset, (laughs) but people have just been able to walk up and and be transparent and share the things that they wanted to share and ask the questions they want to ask. And and I want you to know that I find that that is a privilege as a leader to know that somebody would have the the gumption, the, the, the courage really because it's scary to pick up the phone or type out a text or an email to say, you know what, I don't know how this conversation is going to go, but I'm going to give this person a chance, and I'm going to ask and bring up what I need to bring up, and we're going to talk through it. That is a privilege for us as a church, and I'm so thankful for it. And with a few exceptions, the concerns that have been raised to me are really good concerns. And there, there's the concerns like, hey, are, are we going to stay on mission? Are we going to stay uh, focused on what the Word of God has to say, or are we going to lose focus on what God wants us to focus on? And, and there's one question that I've heard from several people, so it's made me kind of wonder that others have had a similar thought. And here's the question, and I want to talk about this for just a minute. The question is, hey, are, are, we, are we trying to be some kind of megachurch around here? Some of you have asked that. Some of you are laughing, and I, my first my first response was to kind of laugh it off too because if you look around, I mean, we're the furthest thing from a mega church. We're just not that large of a church. But I'm bringing up this question because I think it has a lot of really important layers. Uh, So let me just respond to this question. Uh, On the one hand, how many people come to our church I don't have any control over? And by the way, 
If there's a work of God, if there's a work of renewal that swells the ranks of any local church in our community, then I would be overjoyed and far be it for me to stand in the way. I do not want to be in the way of something God is doing to grow his church. That's wonderful because every single person that belongs to that church is a, is a soul that will last forever. And so on, on the first layer, what I want to say is, we need to be on guard. We need to pray for protection against the mindset that says, I like things just the way they are and I don't want them to change. The problem with that is, what if God wants to do something to change the church? There are plenty of large churches out there that are just being faithful. Praise God. They're doing exactly what God wants them to do. But there's another layer in that question, and it's something like this. Is Indian Creek going to change its core commitments? Is Indian Creek going to change its core values in order to grow numerically? Are we going to start taking this book and sort of shaving portions off of it in order to get more people in the seats? And I can tell you this. That is not the heart of anyone in the, in the, involved in this process. Like, far from it. In fact, as I shared last week, we are looking and praying for opportunities to invest in kingdom work in other local churches. And if you really pushed me, if you really pressed me and said, Jake, what is your personal ambition for this project? My personal ambition, if I had to pick one, I would say something like this. That one day, Indian Creek Baptist Church might actually grow in health and in, in, in numbers to the point where we're able to go plant a church just two or three miles down the road. I mean, that would be so wonderful. I don't have control over that, but hey, if I had to pick something, that's what it would be. And yet our enemy is a great schemer, and he knows the kinds of things that can get the church off track. He's always looking for vulnerabilities, so it's not enough that our intentions are good at any given time. We must pray to the Lord of hosts, to the one who, whose hand of protection is strong and whose mighty angels roam the earth at his bidding, the one who alone can keep us safe, we must pray for protection from the whisperings even of our hearts. But Jesus tells us what to pray. He says, pray for protection. Lead us not into temptation. We must pray for the mission Lord, use this whole project to bring glory to your name. We must pray for provision. Lord, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. If this is something you want us to do, would you please provide the resources? We must pray for remission. Lord, forgive us in Jesus' name for the ways that we failed you. Cleanse us from unrighteousness. Give us grace to be a forgiving community. We must pray for protection. God, give, uh, keep us, please, from our flesh. Help us not to love the world or to embrace selfish ambition and pride. Protect us from the schemes of Satan. That's what we pray. But in verses 5 through 13, Jesus answers a second question. And we really can't dig into all the details of this particular part of the text, so we'll just be brief. And here's the question he answers. Why should we pray? Why should we pray? Which of you, Jesus says, who has a friend, will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. 
and he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything, I tell you. Though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, his persistence, his shamelessness, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, even we, if a friend needs something in the middle of the night and won't leave us alone, will give him what he needs if for no other reason than that we can go back to bed. Even we would do that. And we're sinful, selfish human beings. But guess what? You know why you should pray to God? Because he is way kinder than a friend. He is not that way. He isn't sleeping. He isn't annoyed. He doesn't have a limited supply of bread like all we do. If we were desperate, if if you were desperate and you really needed help, there are people that you would pick up the phone and call. There are people that you would drive to their house and knock on the door. If you really needed help, and if we would be willing to do that with somebody who's just an acquaintance or a friend, then why do we hesitate to go to God? I tell you, ask, Jesus says. Knock. The one who asks receives. The one who knocks gets an open door. Our God is kinder than a friend. But then that's not even where he leaves it. He says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? What kind of person would do that? I mean, even a really neglectful father wouldn't do that. Here you go. Here's something that could really hurt you. I mean, that wouldn't happen, except in the most wicked cases. Any decent father would give his son the things he needs. But here's why you should pray to God. Not only because he's kinder than a friend, but because he is way more generous than an earthly father. He, he, (laughs) you know why you should pray? It's not because your prayers are going to do something magical. It's because of who he is. He's way kinder than a friend. He's way more generous than a father. Not because you'll get what you want, not because prayer works, but because he works. Because the God who is holding everything together is closer to us than a friend. He loves us more than any father. A lot of Christians miss this because they have read a silly book that they got from the bookstore. They think it's all about some, saying some kind of secret magical spell. If I just pray the prayer of Jabez, or if I pray circles around everybody, then I'm going to get what I want. Ridiculous. Your skill at prayer the little secrets that you've learned from your little books, they don't do anything. Our Father in Heaven does everything. And He's not some kind of genie that gives you three wishes. He's not Santa Claus who makes you a list and checks it twice. He's the most wonderful, kind, generous person in existence. And if we pray in His will... If we pray for the mission, if we pray for provision, for remission, for protection, these are the things that he has already said he wants. So do not be afraid to ask. And do not be negligent to watch and wait for an answer. I can only imagine how many times George Mueller read this passage. We're told uh, by some uh, friends close to him that Mueller read through the entire Bible four times every year of his life. 
Uh, this was actually his method of prayer. He would get up very early in the morning. He would open up his Bible. He would read until he felt that he was having fellowship with God and he was uh, communing with God. And then he would take what he had read and he would pray in accordance with what the Spirit revealed. And this was his testimony. He said this, Once my heart has been nourished by the truth, brought into experiential fellowship with God, I speak to my Father and my friend, vile though I am and unworthy of it, about the things that he has brought before me in his precious word. Well, Indian Creek, what about us? Are we going to speak to our Father and our friend? To the one who's closer and kinder than any earthly friend? To the one who's more generous than any earthly father? Are we going to spend time before his throne recognizing that it is not we who does the work, but him. Would you pray with me? And then we'll take time to respond to the word of God. Father, I pray that this time would be pleasing and honoring to you and that you would cause each one of us to grow in our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.